Chapter 14, Part 2 of The Life of Clara Barton, Volume 1, by William Barton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 14, Part 2 Harper's Ferry to Antietam. On this journey, the question was decided who was really in command of her part of the expedition. In one of her lectures, she described her associates on this and subsequent expeditions. There may be those present who are curious to know how eight or ten rough, stout men, who knew nothing of me, received the fact that they were to drive their teams under the charge of a lady. This question has been so often asked in private that I deem it proper to answer it publicly. Well, the various expressions of their faces afforded a study. They were not soldiers, but civilians in government employ. Drovers, butchers, hucksters, mule-breakers, probably not one of them had ever passed an hour and what could be termed ladies' society in his life. But every man had driven through the whole peninsular campaign. Every one of them had taken his team unharmed out of that retreat and had sworn an oath never to drive another step in Virginia. They were brave and skillful, understood their business to perfection, but had no art. They said and looked what they thought, and I understood them at a glance. These teamsters proposed to go into camp at four o'clock in the afternoon and start when they got ready in the morning, but she first established her authority over them and then cooked them a hot supper, the first and last she ever cooked for army teamsters, and they came to her later in the evening, apologized for their obstinacy, and were ready to drive her anywhere. We come to tell you we are ashamed of ourselves, their leader said. I thought honest confession good for the soul and did not interrupt them. The truth is, he continued, in the first place, we didn't want to come. There's fighting ahead, and we've seen enough of that for men who don't carry muskets, only whips. And then we never seen a train under charge of a woman before, and we couldn't understand it, and we didn't like it, and we thought we'd break it up, and we've been mean and contrary all day, and said a good many hard things, and you've treated us like gentlemen. We hadn't no right to expect that supper from you, a better meal than we've had in two years. And you've been as polite to us as if we'd been the general and his staff, and it makes us ashamed. And we've come to ask your forgiveness. We shan't trouble you no more. My forgiveness was easily obtained. I reminded them that as men it was their duty to go where the country had need of them. As for my being a woman, 
they would get accustomed to that, and I assured them that, as long as I had any food, I would share it with them, that when they were hungry and supperless, I should be, that if harm befell them, I should care for them, if sick, I should nurse them, and that, under all circumstances, I should treat them like gentlemen. They listened silently, and when I saw the rough woolen coat sleeves drawing across their faces, it was one of the best moments of my life. Bidding me good night, they withdrew, accepting the leader, who went to my ambulance, hung a lighted lantern in the top, arranged the few quilts inside for my bed, assisted me up the steps, buckled the canvas down snugly outside, covered the fire safely for morning, wrapped his blanket around him, and lay down a few feet from me on the ground. At daylight, I became conscious of low voices and stifled sounds, and soon discovered that these men were endeavoring to speak low and feed and harness their teams quietly not to disturb me. On the other side, I heard the crackling of blazing chestnut rails and the rattling of dishes, and George came with a bucket of fresh water to undo my buckle door latches and announce that breakfast was nearly ready. I had cooked my last meal for my drivers. These men remained with me six months through frost and snow and march and camp and battle, and nursed the sick, dressed the wounded, soothed the dying, and buried the dead, and if possible grew kinder and gentler every day. There was one serious difficulty about following advance information and attempting to be on the battlefield when the battle occurred. The battle does not always occur at the time and place expected. The battle at Harper's Ferry in October 1862 did not take place as planned. General Lee may have received the same advance information which was conveyed to Clara Barton. At all events, he was not among those present when the battle was scheduled to take place. He withdrew his army and waited until he was ready to fight. McClellan decided to follow Lee, and Clara Barton moved with the army. As she moved, she cared for the sick, supplying them from her own stores, returning to Washington with a body of sick men about the 1st of December. She was suffering from a felon on her hand from the 1st of November until near the end of that month. Her hand was lanced in the open field, and she suffered from the cold, but did not complain. She did not remain long in Washington, but returned by way of Aquia Creek and met the army at Falmouth. From Falmouth, she wrote a letter to some of the women who had been assisting her, and sent it by the hand of the Reverend C. M. Wells, one of her reliable associates. 
It contains references to her sore finger and to the nature of accommodations. Camp near Falmouth, Virginia, Headquarters General Sturgis, 2nd Division, December 8, 1862. Messrs. Brown and Company, Dear Friends, Mr. Wells returns tomorrow, and I improve the opportunity to send a line by him to you, not feeling quite certain if posted matter reaches directly when sent from the army. We reached Aquia Creek safely in the time anticipated, and to my great joy learned immediately that our old friend Captain Major Hall of the 21st was quartermaster. As soon as the boat was unloaded, he came on board and spent the remainder of the evening with me. We had a home chat, I assure you. Remained till the next day, sent a barrel of apples, etc., up to the captain's quarters, and proceeded with the remainder of our luggage, for which, it is needless to say, ready transportation was found, and the captain chided me for having left anything behind at the depot, as I told him I had done. On reaching Falmouth Station, we found another old friend, Captain Bailey, in charge, who instituted himself as watch over the goods until he sent them all up to headquarters. My ambulance came through that p.m., but for fear it might not, General Sturgis had his taken down for me, and had supper arranged and a splendid serenade. I don't know how we could have had a warmer welcome home, as the officers termed it. Headquarters are in the dooryard of a farmhouse, one room of which is occupied by Miss G. and myself. My wagons are a little way from me, out of sight, and I am wishing for a tent and stove to pitch and live near them. The weather is cold and the ground covered with snow, but I could make me comfortable with a good tent, floor, and stove, and should prefer it to a room in a rebel house and one so generally occupied. The 21st are a few rods from me, Many of the officers call to see me every day. Colonel Clark is very neighborly. He is looking finely now. He was in this p.m. and was going in search of Colonel Morse, whom he thought to be a mile or two distant. I learned tonight that the 15th are only some three miles away. The 36th I cannot find yet. I have searched hard for them, and shall get on their track soon, I trust. Of army movements, nothing can be said with certainty. No two persons, not even the generals, agree in reference to the future program. The snow appears to have deranged the plans very seriously. I have received calls from two generals today, and in the course of conversation I discovered that their views were entirely different. General Burnside stood a long time in front of my door today, but to my astonishment he did not express his opinion 
strange. I have not suffered for want of the boots yet, but should find them convenient, I presume, and shall be glad to see them. The sore finger is much the same, not very troublesome, although somewhat so. If you desire to reach this point, I think you would find no difficulty after getting past the guard at Washington. At Acquia, you would find all right, I am sure. I can think of a host of things I wish you could take out to me. In spite of her wish that she might have had a tent, and so have avoided living in a captured house, her residence was the Lacey House on the shore of the Rappahannock and close to Fredericksburg. There was nothing uncertain about her information this time. She knew when the battle was to occur, and at two o'clock in the morning she wrote a letter to her cousin, Vira Stone, just before the storm of battle broke. Headquarters, 2nd Division, Army of the Potomac, Camp near Falmouth, Virginia. December 12, 1862, Two o'clock a.m. Dear Cousin Vira, Five minutes' time with you, and God only knows what that five minutes might be worth to the maybe doomed thousands sleeping around me. It is the night before a battle. The enemy, Fredericksburg, and its mighty entrenchments lie before us, the river between. At tomorrow's dawn, our troops will essay to cross, and the guns of the enemy will sweep their frail bridges at every breath. The moon is shining through the soft haze with a brightness almost prophetic. For the last half hour, I have stood alone in the awful stillness of its glimmering light, gazing upon the strange, sad scene around me striving to say, Thy will, O God, be done. The campfires blaze with unwonted brightness, the sentry's tread is still but quick, the scores of little shelter tents are dark and still as death. No wonder, for as I gazed sorrowfully upon them, I thought I could almost hear the slow flap of the grim messenger's wings as one by one he sought and selected his victims for the morning's sacrifice. Sleep, weary ones, sleep and rest for tomorrow's toil. Oh, sleep and visit in dreams once more the loved ones nestling at home. They may yet live to dream of you, cold, lifeless, and bloody. But this dream, soldier, is thy last. Paint it brightly, dream it well. O oh, northern mothers, wives, and sisters, all unconscious of the peril of the hour, would to heaven that I could bear for you the concentrated woe which is so soon to follow. Would that Christ would teach my soul a prayer that would plead to the Father for grace sufficient for you all. God pity and strengthen you every one. Mine 
are not the only waking hours. The light yet burns brightly in our kind-hearted general's tent, where he pens what may be a last farewell to his wife and children, and thinks sadly of his faded men. Already the roll of the moving artillery is sounding in my ears. The battle draws near, and I must catch one hour's sleep for today's labor. Good night, and heaven grant you strength for your more peaceful and terrible, but not less weary days than mine. Clara All her apprehensions were less than the truth. It was a terrible battle and a disheartening disaster. The Union Army lost 1,284 in killed, 9,600 wounded, and 1,769 missing. The memories of Fredericksburg remained with her distinct and terrible to the day of her death. She described the battle and the events which followed it in her war lectures. We found ourselves beside a broad, muddy river and a little canvas city grew up in a night upon its banks. And there we sat and waited while the world wondered. Aye, it did more than wonder. It murmured, it grumbled, it cried shame to sit there and shiver under the canvas. Cross over the river and occupy those brick houses on the other shore. The murmurs grew to a clamor. Our gallant leader heard them, and his gentle heart grew sore as he looked upon his army that he loved as it loved him and looked upon those fearful sights beyond. Carelessness or incapacity at the capital had baffled his best-laid plans till time had made his foes a wall of adamant. Still the country murmured. You, friends, have not forgotten how, for these were the dark days of old Fredericksburg, and our little canvas city was Falmouth. Finally, one soft, hazy winter's day, the army prepared for an attack. But there was neither boat nor bridge, and the sluggish tide rolled dark between. The men of Hooker and Franklin were left and right, but here in the center came the brave men of the silvery-haired Sumner. Drawn up in line, they wait in the beautiful grounds of the stately mansion whose owner, Lacey, had long sought the other side and stood that day aiming engines of destruction at the home of his youth and the graves of his household. There, on the second portico, I stood and watched the engineers as they moved forward to construct a pontoon bridge. It will be remembered that the rebel army occupying the heights of Fredericksburg previous to the attack was very cautious about revealing the position of its guns. A few boats were fastened, and the men marched quickly on with timbers and planks. For a few rods it proved a success, 
and scarcely could the impatient troops be restrained from rending the air with shouts of triumph. On marches the little band with brace and plank, but never to be laid by them. A rain of musket balls has swept their ranks, and the brave fellows lie level with the bridge or float down the stream. No living thing stirs on the opposite bank. No enemy is in sight. Whence comes this rain of death? Maddened by the fate of their comrades, others seize the work and march onward to their doom. For now the balls are hurling thick and fast, not only at the bridge, but over and beyond to the limit of their range, crashing through the trees, the windows and doors of the lacy house. And ever here and there a man drops in the waiting ranks, silently as a snowflake, and his comrades bear him in for help or back for a grave. There on the lower bank, under a slouched hat, stands the man of honest heart and genial face that a soldier could love and honor, even through defeat, the ever-trusted gallant Burnside. Hark, that deep-toned order rising above the heads of his men, bring the guns to bear and shell them out. Then rolled the thunder and the fire. For two long hours the shot and shell hurled through the roofs and leveled the spires of Fredericksburg. Then the little band of engineers resumed its work, but ere ten spaces of the bridge were gained, they fell like grass before the scythe. For an instant all stand aghast. Then ran the murmurs. The cellars are filled with sharpshooters, and our shell will never reach them. But once more over the heads of his men rose that deep-toned order, Man the boats! Into the boats like tigers then sprung the seventh Michigan. Row, row, ply for your lives, boys! And they do, but mark, they fall some into the boats, some out. Others' hands seize the oars and strain and tug with might and main. Oh, how slow the seconds drag, how long we have held our breath. Almost across, under the bluffs, and out of range. Thank God they'll land. Ah, uh, yes, but not all. Mark the windows and doors of those houses above them. See the men swarming from them armed to the teeth and rushing to the river. They've reached the bluffs above the boats. Down point the muskets. Ah, that rain of shot and shell and flame. Out of the boats waist deep in the water, straight through the fire, up, up the bank the boys in blue. Grimly above that line of gray. Down pours the shot, up, up the blue, Till hand to hand, like fighting demons, They wrestle on the edge. Can we breathe yet? No. Still they struggle, 
Ah, yes, they break, they fly, up through the street and out of sight, pursuer and pursued. It were long to tell of that night crossing and the next terrible day of fire and blood, and when the battle broke o'er field and grove, like a resistless flood daylight exposed Fredericksburg with its fourth-day flag of truce, its dead, starving and wounded, frozen to the ground. The wounded were brought to me, frozen for days after, and our commissions and their supplies at Washington with no effective organization or power to go beyond. The many wounded lay, uncared for, on the cold snow. Although the Lacey House was exposed to fire, she was not permitted to remain within the shelter of its walls. While the fight was at its hottest, she crossed the river under fire for a place of greater danger and of greater need. At ten o'clock of the battle day, when the rebel fire was hottest, the shell rolling down every street and the bridge under the heavy cannonade, a courier dashed over and rushing up the steps of the Lacey House, placed in my hand a crumpled, bloody slip of paper, a request from the lion-hearted old surgeon on the opposite shore, establishing his hospitals in the very jaws of death. The uncouth penciling said, Come to me, your place is here. The faces of the rough men working at my side, which eight weeks ago had flushed with indignation at the very thought of being controlled by a woman, grew ashy white as they guessed the nature of the summons, and the lips which had cursed and pouted in disgust trembled as they begged me to send them but save myself. I could only permit them to go with me if they chose and in twenty minutes we were rocking across the swaying bridge, the water hissing with shot on either side. Over into that city of death, its roofs riddled by shell, its very church a crowded hospital, every street a battle line, every hill a rampart, every rock a fortress, and every stone wall a blazing line of forts. Oh, what a day's work was that! How those long lines of blue, rank upon rank, charged over the open acres, up to the very mouths of those blazing guns, and how like grain before the sickle they fell and melted away! An officer stepped to my side to assist me over the debris at the end of the bridge. While our hands were raised in the act of stepping down, a piece of an exploding shell hissed through between us, just below our arms, carrying away a portion of both the skirts of his coat and my dress, rolling along the ground a few rods from us like a harmless pebble into the water. The next instant a solid shot thundered over our heads. A noble steed bounded in the air, and, with his gallant rider, rolled in the dirt, 
not thirty feet in the rear. Leaving the kind-hearted officer, I passed on alone to the hospital, and less than a half hour he was brought to me, dead. I mention these circumstances not as specimens of my own bravery. Oh, no, I beg you will not place that construction upon them, for I never professed anything beyond ordinary courage and a thousand times preferred safety to danger. But I mention them that those of you who have never seen a battle may the better realize the perils through which these brave men passed, who for four long years bore their country's bloody banner in the face of death, and stood a living wall of flesh and blood between the invading traitor and your peaceful homes. In the afternoon of Sunday, an officer came hurriedly to tell me that in a church across the way lay one of his men shot in the face the day before. His wounds were bleeding slowly, and, the blood drying and hardening about his nose and mouth, he was in immediate danger of suffocation. Friends, this may seem to you repulsive, but I assure you that many a brave and beautiful soldier has died of this alone. Seizing a basin of water and a sponge, I ran to the church to find the report only too true. Among hundreds of comrades lay my patient, for any human appearance above his head and shoulders it might as well have been anything but a man. I knelt by him, and commenced with fear and trembling, lest some unlucky movement close the last aperture for breath. After some hours' labor, I began to recognize features. They seemed familiar. With what impatience I wrought. Finally, my hand wiped away the last obstruction and I opened, and there to my gaze was the sexton of my old home church. I have remarked that every house was a hospital. Passing from one to another during the tumult of Saturday, I waited for a regiment of infantry to sweep on its way to the heights. Being alone and the only woman visible among that moving sea of men, I naturally attracted the attention of the old veteran, Provost Marshal General Patrick, who, mistaking me for a resident of the city who had remained in her home until the crashing shot had driven her into the street, dashed through the waiting ranks to my side, and bending down from his saddle, said in his kindliest tones, "'You are alone,' and in great danger, madam, do you want protection? Amused at his gallant mistake, I humored it by thanking him, as I turned to the ranks, adding that I believed myself the best protected woman in the United States. The soldiers near me caught my words, and responding with, That's so, that's so, set up a cheer. This, in turn, was caught by the next line, and so on, 
line after line, till the whole army joined in the shout, no one knowing what he was cheering at, but never doubting there was a victory somewhere. The gallant old general, taking in the situation, bowed low his bared head, saying as he galloped away, I believe you are right, madam. It would be difficult for persons in ordinary life to realize the troubles arising from want of space merely for wounded men to occupy when gathered together for surgical treatment and care. You may suggest that all out of doors ought to be large, and so it would seem, but the fact did not always prove so. Civilized men seek shelter in sickness, and of this there was ever a scarcity. Twelve hundred men were crowded into the Lacey House, which contained but twelve rooms. They covered every foot of the floors and porticoes, and even lay on the stair landings. A man who could find opportunity to lie between the legs of a table thought himself lucky. He was not likely to be stepped on. In a common cupboard with four shelves, five men lay and were fed and attended. Three lived to be removed, and two died of their wounds. Think of trying to lie still and die quietly, lest you fall out of a bed six feet high. Among the wounded of the 7th Michigan was one Faulkner, of Ashtabula County, Ohio, a mere lad, shot through the lungs, and to all appearances dying. When brought in, he could swallow nothing, breathed painfully, and it was with great difficulty that he gave me his name and residence. He could not lie down, but sat leaning against the wall in the corner of the room. I observed him carefully as I hurried past from one room to another, and finally thought he had ceased to breathe. At this moment, another man with a similar wound was taken in on a stretcher by his comrades, who sought in vain for a spot large enough to lay him down and appealed to me. I could only tell them that when that poor boy in the corner was removed, they could set him down in his place. They went to remove him, but to the astonishment of all, he objected, opened his eyes, and persisted in retaining his corner, which he did for some two weeks, when finally a mere bundle of skin and bones, for he gave small evidence of either flesh or blood, he was wrapped in a blanket and taken away in an ambulance to Washington, with a bottle of milk punch in his blouse, the only nourishment he could take. On my return to Washington three months later, a messenger came from the Lincoln Hospital to say that the men of Ward 17 wanted to see me. I returned with him, and as I entered the ward, seventy men saluted me, standing, such as could, others rising feebly in their beds and falling back, exhausted with the effort. Every man had left his blood in Fredericksburg. Everyone was from the Lacey House. 
My hand had dressed every wound, many of them in the first terrible moments of agony. I had prepared their food in the snow and winds of December and fed them like children. How dear they had grown to me in their sufferings and the three great cheers that greeted my entrance into that hospital ward were dearer than the applause. I would not exchange their memory for the wildest hurrahs that ever greeted the ear of conqueror or king. When the first greetings were over and the agitation had subsided somewhat, a young man walked up to me with no apparent wound, with bright complexion, and in good flesh. There was certainly something familiar in his face, but I could not recall him, until, extending his hand with a smile, he said, I am Riley Faulkner of the Seventh Michigan. I didn't die, and the milk punch lasted all the way to Washington. The author once inquired of Miss Barton how she dressed for these expeditions. She dressed simply, she said, so that she could get about easily, but her costume did not greatly differ from that of the ordinary woman of the period. She added humorously that her wardrobe was not wholly a matter of choice. Her clothes underwent such hard usage that nothing lasted very long, and she was glad to wear almost anything she could get. This was not wholly satisfactory, for those were the days of hoop skirts and other articles of feminine attire which had no possible place in her work. From Mrs. Vassal, the author obtained somewhat more explicit information. She said, When Clara went to the front, she dressed in a plain black print skirt with a jacket. She wished to dress so that she could easily get about and not consume much time in dressing. Her clothing received hard usage, and when she returned from any campaign to Washington, she was in need of a new outfit. At one time, the women of Oxford sent her a box for her own personal use. Friends in Oxford furnished the material, and Annie Childs made the dresses. The box was delivered at her room during her absence, and she returned from the field weary and wet, her hair soaked and falling down her back, and entered her cold and not very cheerful room. There she found this box with its complete outfit, and kneeling beside it she burst into happy tears. The author counts it especially fortunate that he has been able to find a letter from Clara relating to this very experience, which was on the occasion of her return from the Battle of Fredericksburg. It was addressed to Annie Childs and dated four months later. Port Royal, May 28, 1863. My dear Annie, I remember... Four long months ago, one cold, dreary, windy day, I dragged me out from a chilly streetcar that had found me ankle-deep in the mud on the Sixth Street Wharf and up the slippery street and my long flights of stairs into a room cheerless 
in confusion and alone, looking in most respects as I had left it some months before, with the exception of a mysterious box which stood unopened in the middle of the floor. All things looked strange to me, for in that few months I had taken in so much that yet I had no clear views. The great artist had been at work upon my brain and sketched it all over with life scenes and death scenes never to be erased. The fires of Fredericksburg still blazed before my eyes, and her cannon still thundered at my ear while away down in the depths of my heart i was smothering the groans and treasuring the prayers of her dead and dying heroes worn weak and heartsick i was home from fredericksburg and when there for the first time i looked at myself shoeless gloveless ragged and blood-stained a new sense of desolation and pity and sympathy and weariness all blended swept over me with irresistible force and perfectly overpowered i sank down upon the strange box unquestioning its presence or import and wept as i had never done since the soft hazy winter night that saw our attacking guns silently stealing their approach to the river ready at the dawn to ring out the shout of death to the waiting thousands at their wheels. I said I wept, and so I did, and gathering strength and calmness and consciousness, and finally the strange box which had afforded me my first rest began to claim my attention. It was clearly and handsomely marked to myself at Washington and came by express. So much for the outside and a few prize with a hatchet, to hands as well accustomed as mine, soon made the inside as visible, only for the neat paper which covered it all. It was doubtless something sent to some soldier. Pity I had not had it earlier. It might be too late now. He might be past his wants or the kind remembrances of the loved ones at home. The while I was busy in removing the careful paper wrappings, a letter, addressed to me, opened, from friends in Oxford and Worcester. No signature. Mechanically, I commenced lifting up, one after another, hoods, shoes, boots, gloves, skirts, handkerchiefs, collars, linen, and that beautiful dress. Look at it all made, who? Ah, there is no mistaking the workmanship. Annie's scissors shaped, and her skillful fingers fitted that. Now I began to comprehend. While I had been away in the snows and frosts and rains and muds of Falmouth, forgetting my friends, myself, to eat or sleep or rest, forgetting everything but my God and the poor suffering victims around me, these dear kind friends, undismayed and not disheartened by the great national calamity which had overtaken them, mourning, perhaps, the loss of their own, had remembered me. 
and with open hearts and willing hands had prepared this noble, thoughtful gift for me at my return. It was too much, and this time, burying my face in the dear tokens around me, I wept again as heartily as before, but with very different sensations. A new chord was struck. My labors, slight and imperfect as they had been, had been appreciated. I was not alone, and then and there again I rededicated myself to my little work of humanity, pledging before God all that I have, all that I am, all that I can, and all that I hope to be, to the cause of justice and mercy and patriotism, my country and my God. And cheered and sustained as I have been by the kind remembrances of old friends, the cordial greetings of new ones, and the tearful, grateful blessings of the thousands of noble martyrs to whose relief or comfort it has been my blessed privilege to add my might, I feel that my cup of happiness is more than full. It is an untold privilege to have lived in this day when there is work to be done, and still more to possess health and strength to do it, and most of all to feel that I bear with me the kindly feelings and perhaps prayers of the noble mothers and sisters who have sent sons and brothers to fight the battles of the world in the armies of freedom. Annie, if it is not asking too much, now that I have gathered up resolution enough to speak of the subject at all, for I have never been able to before, I would like to know to whom, besides yourself, I am indebted for these beautiful and valuable gifts. It is too tame and too little to say that I am thankful for them. You did not want that, but I will say that, God willing, I will yet wear them where none of the noble donors would be ashamed to have them seen. Some of those gifts shall yet see service, if heaven spare my life. With thanks, I am the friend of my friends in Oxford and Worcester. Clara Barton End of chapter 14, part 2